Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, a long interview with Behind the News veteran Yanis Varoufakis. He's here to talk about his new book, Adults in the Room, My Battle with the European and American Deep Establishment, just published by Farrar Strauss and Giroux. If anyone's interested, I have a review of Varoufakis's book on the Baffler's website, thebaffler.com. Yanis Varoufakis, who'd been living a peaceful life as a professor of economics, became the finance minister of Greece in January 2015. That was six years into the European debt crisis, after several rounds of austerity had been imposed on Greece and the other countries in the European periphery, the so-called pigs, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Though the austerity, successive rounds of deep cuts in government spending in countries already in depression, was supposed to lead to recovery, it led only to deeper misery. In Greece, all the years of austerity had led to the collapse of the established parties and a victory in the January 2015 elections by Syriza, a Greek acronym for a name that translates as Coalition of the Radical Left. Though its leader, Alexis Tsipras, had served several terms in Parliament, none of its principles could be described as seasoned political prose. In the years leading up to his ministerial role, Varoufakis had become a prominent critic of the orthodoxy that was impoverishing the European periphery. He argued that the European Central Bank should finance debt relief for the troubled peripheral states and backstop the continent's ailing banks. At the same time, the European authorities should invest heavily in the infrastructure of the crisis countries. A few decades ago, that would have been seen as a respectable Keynesian prescription, but in this era of neoliberalism, it seemed otherworldly. Crisis was the inevitable outcome of bringing 12 countries, later expanded to 19, at widely varying levels of economic development into a single currency area. Germany is an economic powerhouse, producing some of the world's most advanced goods. Greece has many charms, but no Daimler-Benz. Italy and Spain are somewhere in between. Enthusiasm that joining the Eurozone would magically allow Greece and other peripheral countries to converge to German levels of development sent capital pouring into the laggards. That set off an unsustainable boom that did nothing to improve underlying economic fundamentals. Greece ran chronic trade deficits with Germany and other advanced countries. Its goods could compete neither in quality nor price. The government also ran large budget deficits. Both deficits were financed by the inflows of capital I mentioned earlier, with German, French, and other northern European banks pumping in the cash. In the days before the euro, the country could devalue its currency, the drachma. That made imports more expensive and exports cheaper, which helped put the international books back into balance. That kept cyclical troubles from turning into crises. That remedy was foreclosed once Greece entered the euro. The inflow of capital stopped, and the lenders wanted their money back. GDP fell by 4% in 2010, a deep recession in itself, and then contracted by another 23% through 2013, figures comparable to our Great Depression. Into this unfolding disaster stepped a crew of technocrats nicknamed the Troika, an unholy trinity consisting of the European Commission, European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. They prescribed deep cuts to public spending in return for loans, the proceeds of which were not used to alleviate the suffering of Greeks, but to alleviate the suffering of its creditors. The bailout money briefly passed through Greek hands on its way to Frankfurt and Paris. Syriza was elected to put an end to this bloodletting. Unlike many in Syriza, Varoufakis, who was never a member of the party, opposed leaving the Eurozone. Greece should never have entered, he thought, but once in, an exit, Grexit, would be catastrophic. It would take too long to create a new currency, and in the time it was being created, any Greek with a few euros to spare would whisk them out of the country, making a horrible situation even more so. Varoufakis preferred to negotiate within the Eurozone, and even to default on Greek debt service payments to bondholders and the IMF if necessary. Varoufakis' efforts to negotiate with the Troika were essentially pointless. Most of his contact was with something called the Eurogroup, a collective of finance ministers along with the head of the European Central Bank and a few other high-level bureaucrats. The president of the Eurogroup, the Dutch finance minister Jeroen Dijsselbloem, nominally a social democrat but in fact an accomplished sadomonetarist, explained to Varoufakis that, quote, the Eurogroup does not exist in law. There are no written rules about the way it conducts its business and therefore its president is not legally bound. Varoufakis was allowed to present what were called non-papers to the group, position papers with no legal standing, but they were routinely ignored. The dominant personality on the creditor's side was the German finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble, whose worldview could be captured in a saying he attributed to his grandmother, benevolence comes before dissoluteness. Although Schäuble agreed with Varoufakis that the Eurozone was unsustainable under present arrangements, he had no time for Varoufakis' Keynesian solution. Instead, he wanted greater discipline and it will be a much stronger Eurozone if it is disciplined by Grexit, he said. Greece was a bother that had to be expelled. After six months of pointless negotiations, 
Greece finally threw up its hands in June 2015. The government put the Eurogroup's latest offer up for a referendum, accept or reject. The vote, held just a week after it was announced, was 61-39 to reject. Varoufakis wanted the government to invoke the default option, and should the authorities eject Greece from the Eurozone, improvise a new currency. But his colleagues had lost their nerve. Ignoring the referendum, they rolled over and agreed to yet another austerity deal, and Varoufakis resigned. He now devotes much of his time to organizing a Democracy in Europe 2025 movement, DM 2025, which aims to democratize and open up the European Union. Here's the first part of my interview with Yanis Varoufakis. Before we get to the book, uh, just wondering how Greece is doing. Conventional stats have uh, GDP stuck in neutral. What's it look like uh, on the ground? Every day is worse than the previous day. The exodus of both uh, business acumen and both small and large companies, as well as of human capital, of youngsters, well-educated youngsters, is continuing. There's been uh, a slight revival in unemployment rates, primarily because of this emigration, and also because the desperation has reached levels that um, pushes youngsters to take jobs for 200 euros a month. Uh, but the, the overall feeling is one of gloom and doom, of major discontent. And um, there's nothing on the horizon other than even higher tax rates uh, and uh, a continuation of the squeeze, both in terms of liquidity and investment. Um, so nothing leaves room for optimism. What's the political situation of Syriza? Are they surviving, uh, hated? What, how do people feel? Syriza has imploded in terms of its uh, performance at the polls. They are now languishing at 15% of the vote when the right has been restored to something like close to 30%. The voters who still declare that they will vote for Syriza are not enthusiastic about it, but it's because uh, so far there is a dearth of alternatives. They prefer to have Tsipras imposing policies that they loathe than have the right wing, which would do so enthusiastically. And what about the other countries, Spain, Portugal? Um, how are they doing? Portugal has stagnated. Portugal is, uh, is being celebrated as a success story. Uh, the new left-wing coalition government uh, are doing their best. They are playing a defensive game. Before they uh, were allowed to form a government by the president of the republic, they had to sign on the dotted line they would accept everything that the previous governments had done and not try to change it. So the one issue game, if you want, is how to prevent new austerity from hitting the country. They've been successful in that. But the, um, the legacy of the austerity and of the debt that has been imposed on the country has been such that um, tiny little upswings are being celebrated as major success stories. Spain is uh, different. Spain has positive inflation now and the growth rate which looks quite impressive, around 4 or 5%. But if you look at the composition of the increase in aggregate demand that has brought it about, it is uh, private debt. And private debt uh, that is unsecured, the, the same private debt that brought about the original crisis. At the same time, the labor market is um, suffering from uh, a deterioration of working conditions. So the jobs that are being created are precarious. They're not... Uh, supported by any collective bargaining agreements, by any degree of safety. There are uh, low-skilled, low-paying jobs that, that have uh, replaced the better-skilled, uh, higher-paying jobs of the past. The Italian situation is uh, abominable. The banking system is uh, absolutely insolvent, and they are trying their best to cover up that, that, those insolvencies. There is a little bit of investment in the luxury sector. So, yeah, the Bulgaris and Ferraris are investing again. But there is no increase in investment at all in uh, all those industrial sectors that give Italy its substance. Italy has a substantial economy. It has a current account surplus. But sectors that are stagnating. If you couple that uh, situation, that, that image with what's happening in the surplus countries, uh, like Germany, like Holland, that are experiencing the largest current account surpluses in the history of the universe. They make uh, China of 10 years ago look like um, a walk in the park. 
you realize that this is a grossly unsustainable macroeconomic set of circumstances for Europe as a whole. But there's no sign of a rethink of the policy among the top policymakers? There was never any thinking behind it. So very unlikely that it would be a rethink because come to think of it, what is absolutely astonishing is that um, Europe has never had a conversation, even at the top echelons of the European Union, about what the macroeconomic stance should be. Austerity came in in a kind of a de facto manner. The policies of austerity were not the result of deliberation. It's not that smart adults in a room sat around the table and decided, okay, Let's believe that, uh, you know, the story that when debt is high, we need to introduce austerity measures. No, 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 no. Nothing, no, nothing like that. It happened almost by default. It all began with Greece. The Greek state went bankrupt. And they decided that uh, they could not allow the Greek state to go bankrupt because then the German and the French banks would be uh, irretrievable. So they bailed out the Greek state only to, in order to bail out the German and the, and the French banks. And as an afterthought, they attached a great deal of austerity onto the Greeks. And the reason for doing that was because the only way of pushing the new bailouts through the federal parliament in Berlin uh, was to show the members of parliament there that they were uh, you know, exacting large <laughs> amounts of flesh from the Greek economy uh, in exchange for the bailout loans. And this became the austerity drive. It wasn't the result of some macroeconomic discussion. It was like kind of biblical economics, an eye for an eye. Uh, you went bankrupt. We're going to give you a lot of money to give to our bankers, and we'll make you suffer for it. This is not exactly a macroeconomic conversation. So how can you have a rethink <laughs> of policies which were never thought out? How does what uh, Europe did, uh, went through, uh, compare with the Latin American debt crisis of the 80s? Oh, it's very similar. The only difference was that um, in the case of, let's say, the Mexican economy, or indeed later the you know, Argentinian and Brazilian situation, they had uh, a peg between their currency and the US dollar, a fixed exchange rate, which is very similar to the euro in many ways. Uh, that fixed exchange rate caused a massive inflow of capital from Wall Street to Mexico. That created uh, a semblance of growth, uh, an irrational exuberance within Mexico. Bubbles were created, Ponzi growth went ahead. Then the bubbles burst, and once they were burst, it was impossible to stop the exodus of money, as long as the peg was maintained between the peso and the US dollar. The, uh, so th this is very, very similar to what was happening in the Eurozone between, let's say, Germany and Greece. The difference is that Mexicans had the peso in their pocket did not have the US dollar. And so at some point, when the exodus of uh, capital from Mexico became a tsunami, and once the, the powerful had shifted all their wealth, liquidated all their wealth and shifted it to Wall Street, then suddenly they, you know, they, they, they allowed the peg uh, to, to, to end. And um, then there was devaluation, the and we know the, the rest as history. In the case of the euro, it, it, it is not a simple matter of cutting the peg because the Greeks did not have a, a drachma that was pegged one-to-one -one on the euro. They had the actual euro. Creating our own currency to devalue it uh, would have taken not one night, but it would have taken about a year. So this, this made the costs of exiting the peg, exiting the euro, uh, stupendous. Okay, now on to the book. Towards the beginning of the book, you recounted the anecdote of meeting Larry Summers in a bar. And uh, he says, there are two kinds of people in politics, insiders and outsiders. Uh, and uh, the insiders are the ones in the corridors of power who don't talk about what really goes on. And the outsiders are the ones who are out there causing trouble. Uh, and he asked which you were. Also, Juncker, uh, the former president of the EC, said, uh, when things get serious, you have to lie. Um, did this kind of approach to politics surprise you? Um, did it confirm what you'd suspected all along? Um, what were your feelings entering this, this strange realm of you know, this, this tour of the inside? No, none of that was surprising. Uh, I thought that Larry Summers put it very succinctly, put it better than I would have been able to put it. Uh, but what is actually interesting, Doug, and this is something I think that our audience deserves to, to hear, was that Larry Summers in that conversation was not clashing with me. 
here he was, you know, typical Larry Summers, the um, <laughs> the stalwart, the a representative of the inside, the core of the insiders, uh, with a radical lefty like me. But he was not there to challenge me. He was there to help me. Uh, as I explained in the book, that was a meeting as part of an association that we formed, and a very ephemeral association, a very tactical alliance. But he tried to help my government and me personally because he understood, he's a smart man, that uh, the developments in Greece and in the Eurozone were detrimental to global recovery and in particular to the United States economy. And the question that he put to me was not in order to challenge me in any way, but in order to find out what kind of man I was, what kind of politician I was, in order to help me in the most efficient way. This is what makes it so delicious, that exchange. Uh, he was, he was uh, sussing me out in order to help me. Um, isn't that sweet? <laughs> That's not a word one associates with Larry Summers. On that particular occasion, it was one, maybe one of the very rare occasions in, in his career, when he was trying to do the wrong, the, the right thing, maybe for the wrong reasons. And he was asking me to, you know, he, was, he would have very much liked me to be an insider, because I, I would have more of a capacity to um, to stay the course within the circle of insiders. But even when I told him that I'm an outsider, he, he nodded and then he went ahead and tried to help. I'm speaking with former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis, whose book Adults in the Room has just been published by Farrar Strauss. You say that uh, what happened, what the Eurogroup was doing, you know, the policymakers you were negotiating with, uh, was not a conspiracy. But now you use a phrase like deep establishment. It does sort of touch on the language of conspiracy. So how is what you're talking about, this deep establishment, differ from your off-the-shelf conspiracy theorizing? Well, a conspiracy requires talent, and it requires intelligence and foresight. For you and I to conspire, we have to predict events, and we have to sit in a smoke-filled room. <laughs> Let's put it cinematographically. And plot uh, the, the, the future. Um, our great deep of establishment are not capable of doing that. They do not have the power of foresight or the smartness to predict uh, the future in a way as to try to subvert it by means of some conspiracy. What happened was very, very simple. Before 2008, they all believed their own idiotic rhetoric about um, you know, the new paradigm, riskless risk, uh, that uh, the banks could you know, produce mountains of private money, of um, exotic derivatives, and that, that was safe. They believed all that. And they believed that states that financed themselves by allowing bankers to, to go crazy, to go berserk, and simply collect some tax from them, which is what social democracy was all about, from Bill Clinton to Tony Blair to Gerhard Schroeder to Papandreou in Greece. This is what social democracy ended up doing allowing, turning a blind eye to the bankers and hoping that they would collect some of the loot in order to fund some hospitals and some schools. Uh, so they believed that this was going to be, that was a permanent situation when people like me, and I suspect you too, were telling them that this was just pie in the sky and uh, there were natural limits to this irrational exuberance and the whole thing would come tumbling down. They were looking at people like me and they were saying that, oh, you know, you old leftists, you, you don't understand the new world we live in. It's not the way it used to be. Now we have a capacity uh, to keep growing forever. You, you remember the great moderation um, narrative. And then, of course, the, the, you know, the, the, the sky landed on, the, on their heads in 2008. The, the earth moved under their feet and they panicked. In the case of Greece, that, that panic uh, was felt most strongly in, in Berlin and, and Paris because the French and the German banks had already gone bankrupt once in 2008-2009. Mrs. Merkel had to fork out 500 billion euros, which is something like 600 billion dollars uh, from the taxpayers and give it to Deutsche Bank and another two banks in, in, in Germany. And she didn't understand why she had to do it. She was very cross that she had to do it. She hadn't seen it coming. She didn't um, fathom it even when it was happening. But at least she thought, well, I've done it now. It is politically very damaging to me, but let's move on. And then eight months later, she gets another phone call from the same people in the, in, in the chancellery and the finance ministry saying, um, 
um, Chancellor, we need another four, five, five hundred billion. She screamed on the phone, why? <laughs> the answer was, well, Greece is going bankrupt. If they go bankrupt, the, the Portuguese will go bankrupt. If they go bankrupt, the Spanish will go bankrupt. Then we will not need to give a trillion to, uh, to the same banks. So she could not go back to her uh, federal parliament and ask for another wad of money for the same banks. So she did something else in the moment of panic. She asked for solidarity with Greece, which sounds a lot better than solidarity with, with Deutsche Bank a second time round. And this, of course, there was no solidarity with Greece. There was a loan that went to Greece so that Greece can give it to, the, to Deutsche Bank to get this, uh, the, the approval, the consent of her members of parliament in uh, the Bundestag, the federal parliament. She had to lie to them. She had to say to them that this is for the Greeks, that we will get all our money back with interest which, of course, she knew would never happen because when you give the largest loan in human history to the most bankrupt state um, on conditions of austerity that shrink their income, you can't expect your money back. Uh, but she, in order to save Deutsche Bank again without saying that she was doing that, she lied to her members of parliament. And then once you lie to your members of parliament, um, then it becomes political poison to have to go in to admit to them that you had lied to them. So the denial of Berlin... Uh, regarding the unsustainability of the Greek debt has to do with the survival of Angela Merkel. There's no conspiracy in any of what I've, I've told you. What I've told you is a comedy of errors, a comedy of crimes against logic done by panicky politicians who had no clue of what they were doing and they were making it up as they were going along. Well, this sounds, you know, like common sense in the Gramscian sense that uh, it doesn't involve thought, it's just sort of uh, in your bones. It's reflexes you don't even think about. That's right, especially when these politicians were not particularly cognizant of the world that they were supposed to be managing. Angela Merkel, Wolfgang Schäuble, Christine Lagarde don't understand capitalism. They have no concept of capitalism. They understand something called the market. Um, they've heard some stories about supply and demand. They don't understand that money markets are very different to potato markets. They don't understand that labor markets are very, very different to the automobile industry. So when those markets uh, suddenly collapse under their feet, they have no idea what's happening. And the first thing they do is they look after their own mates, the people that kept them in power, the people who financed their campaigns, the bankers. And then once they've done that, then they have to find ways of continually lying to the people, to their own members of parliament, to their own parties, in order to cover up their, their, their own trail. The negotiations, as you describe them, really sound surreal, as if they're trying to gaslight you. I mean, the, uh, the idea that there are non-papers that you would submit that no one would ever read. You were told the Eurogroup does not exist. Something similar was said about the Paris Club back in the 80s. Were you ever tempted to go public with this during the, the process? Absolutely, and I did to some extent. But, of course, I was constrained while I was in office. I made it clear when I was still in the finance minister of Greece that uh, the Eurogroup operates in conditions of crashing opacity. And um, I even leaked uh, to a New York Times journalist while I was in office that I was recording all the meetings in the Eurogroup only because it was my only defense towards uh, to, to, to all the distortions that were being said about what was going on behind closed doors, about what I was proposing, what the others were proposing. Look, it was a very trying period for me, personally, because uh, of an impossible balance that I had to keep between being an outsider, telling the people out there on the street the truth, while at the same time uh, exhausting the last uh, remaining room for a negotiated settlement with, with, uh, the, uh, with the creditors. Uh, my great mistake was to imagine that my Prime Minister, Alexis Tsipras, was with me on this and that we would see this through to the end. And that when the room for maneuver for negotiations was in the end exhausted, as it happened in late June, then uh, we would come out all guns blazing and we would tell the truth exactly as it was in the context of a rupture, as we called it, with the creditors. Unfortunately, my prime minister did not follow me and I ended up doing it on my own. <laughs> this is how this this book. It seemed like the Eurogroup ministers didn't even answer to their own elected governments, right? It seemed like Schäuble was often on his own, uh, even against Merkel. How do the, uh, you know, the elected, the prime ministers uh, and such, let this go on? He wasn't the only one. Uh, I can tell you that, uh, for instance, the Austrian uh, minister of finance was utterly at odds with his chancellor, utterly at odds. 
they were, it was as if they belonged to, you know, imagine one being Barack Obama and the other being Donald Trump. That was the kind of uh, disconnect between them. Similarly, between the Belgian prime minister and the Belgian finance minister, which made it incredibly difficult to know who the hell you were negotiating with. Because, you know, you, you talk to one and if you found some common ground with the finance minister, then the prime minister, his prime minister, would, would, would uh, disagree and hit you over the head with a blunt instrument and vice versa. Uh, but look, the, I think that the real lesson from this story is that if you have opacity, if there's no transparency, if all these crucial decisions and exchanges take place behind closed doors with no transcripts, no minutes, no live streaming, no record whatsoever, you are effectively asking for trouble. You're asking for an anti-democratic process to begin with precisely zero accountability. We're listening to an interview with former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis, whose book Adults in the Room is just out from Farrar Strauss. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, and the program is Behind the News. Back with part two of the Varoufakis interview after a musical break. some of Haydn's Piano Trio number 45, performed by the Beaux-Arts Trio. And now on to part two of my interview with Yanis Varoufakis, author of Adults in the Room. Sometimes it struck me that you seemed rather restrained in your critiques of, uh, um, or criticisms, rather, of uh, Schäuble and Dazelblum. Did you ever feel like strangling them? I think I would have felt that way. No, not really. Um... I mean, you even expressed respect for Schäuble at one point. I kind of like this guy, you say. Well... Since you mentioned these two, let's look at Dieselblum and Schäuble. Dieselblum was the the puppet, and Schäuble was the puppeteer. So I had I can't get angry with a puppet, however despicable it might be. Yeah. <laughs> um, as for the puppeteer, Schäuble, uh, I explained in the book why I respected him. It wasn't so much respect. It was uh, firstly he was not banal. He was interesting, unlike his puppet. Uh, secondly, uh, there was a logic in his illogicality. He's um, a very conservative German lawyer. He's not an economist. He makes a point of not understanding macroeconomics. And this I mean very seriously. It's not just that he does not understand macroeconomics. He does not want to understand macroeconomics. And this is a political decision on his part because he was using the Ministry of Finance geopolitically as if it was his own chancellery. He was very frustrated. He wanted to be chancellor. Angela Merkel effectively stole the chancellery from him in the early 1990s in a celebrated episode. And concluding with the reason why I respected him was because he had a vision for Europe. It was a very dystopian vision, but it was a vision at least. He could see ahead. Um, He tried to conspire about what Europe should be like. For him, the Eurozone, the common currency area, was constructed wrongly. And this is somewhere where we agreed, because I I also believe that. He believed that Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain should never be be in the Eurozone. The Eurozone should be a common currency area for surplus countries like um, Germany, uh, Belgium, Holland, uh, Austria, and so on. And he understood that everything that was was being done to my country was detrimental to the interests of my people and that it could never work. So at least I didn't have somebody in front of me who was saying silly things like, you know, take the medicine and it will work. He understood that the medicine was poison and it would not work. And when I pushed him to uh, on an ethical basis, on a moral basis, by asking him, don't you feel bad 
pushing my uh, my country in that direction, given that you know it's it's, it's terrible for my people. Um, he said he admitted that the reason why he was doing this was because uh, he had only one thing in mind, which was uh, how to subjugate Paris. His view was very simple: the euro is the Deutschmark, uh, and if the French want to use my currency, they will have to submit their national budget uh, to my purview. And uh, if I'm nice to you, he said to me at some point, and if I let you off the hook, that is Greece, then the French will get the wrong message. And I cannot afford to, to do this. And when I have pushed him again on the ethical question, but yeah, so you're telling me that the whole nation, the Greek nation, are going to be collateral damage in your struggle with, um, with, with France. And, you know, this happened 70, 80 years ago previously, right? And I thought that he would get really incensed with me and throw me out of his office. He didn't. He said, you're right. And I feel very bad about it. So I want to give you huge help to get out of the Eurozone uh, because I feel bad about what's happening to your people. And then I said, well, do you have a mandate to have this discussion with me to help us get out of the euro? And it turned out we both established together, collaboratively, if you want, that Angela Merkel, his chancellor, wouldn't give him this mandate. So I could not possibly even enter into this discussion with him. So these discussions were interesting. He showed some compassion for my country. And above all else, um, Doug, it's very important to have from the horse's mouth somebody confirming your story that these austerity policies were catastrophic for your nation. Since 2010, the powers that be keep saying that austerity is um, tough, but it's the, the right medicine and it's good for my country. Here was the finance minister of Germany admitting to my face that this was all claptrap. Well, he said he would, if he were in your shoes, he wouldn't have signed the deal. Well, isn't that a reason to respect him? <laughs> yes, I guess so. Um, well, in some ways, you know, right-wingers are preferable to um, all these soft leftists who um, will tell you a lot of stories. Speaking of which, you know, a lot of fire has been uh, trained on the uh, the likes of Schäuble, but much less on the social democrats in the core countries. They would say nice things to you uh, and then end up going along with a Eurogroup consensus. What do you think makes them behave this way? You know, saying the nice things and then going along with orthodoxy in the end. I found the behavior of the Social Democrats despicable and highly damaging. And you are right. I would much rather talk to a right-winger like Schäuble than a supposed Social Democrat like Sigmar Gabriel or any of his minions that supposedly were treating me like a comrade when backstabbing me at the very, 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 very same time. Now, why, why is that? Look, Social Democracy sold its soul to the devil some time ago. I have a theory. I'll share it with you. In the 1960s and 70s, social democrats saw themselves as referees, arbiters, between capital and, and industrial, industrial capital and labor. And they did. Uh, people like Willy Brandt in Germany and Bruno Kreisky in Austria, uh, even Andreas Papandreou the, in the 1970s and 1980s, saw his job, saw their job as mediating between um, in, industrialist factory owners, effectively, and workers and trade unions. Um, take, uh, improving the conditions of the working class and taking a chunk of industrial profits and using them to fund the welfare state. But since the late 1970s, early 1980s, when the industrial sector in the West started shrinking, started shrinking and finance took over, the financial sector uh, grew exponentially. Social Democrats, by the mid-80s, late-80s, uh, changed their tune. Instead of mediating between industrialists and trade unions, they struck a Faustian bargain with the financiers. And the deal was very simple. We will turn a blind eye to whatever you do. Remember, Larry Summers, Tim Geithner, Bill Clinton in the 1990s in the United States did exactly the same thing. And in exchange for us allowing you to build these Ponzi schemes in the financial sector, uh, we will tax you a little bit and uh, fund some social programs. Uh, Tony Blair did this uh, very successfully. He did increase quite substantially expenditure on the, on the National Health Service, on pensions, uh, on uh, social benefits, child benefit, uh, by taxing the, the bankers while at the same time unleashing them to do whatever it is that they pleased. So when uh, in 2008 the financial bubbles collapsed, the Social Democrats in power lacked both the analytical skills and the moral backbone to turn to the back and say, well, sorry, mate, uh, your scheme failed. Now I'm going to have to bail out the banks, of course, but I'm not going to bail out you. 
Uh, instead, they bailed out the bankers and they shifted huge losses onto the shoulders of the weakest of taxpayers. At that moment, their soul had been sold to Mephistopheles and social democracy had lost its capacity to do anything other than to struggle to stay in power by turning against the people that relied on them for some assistance. Well, they also mediated between capitalism and communism. And when communism disappeared, uh, did they lose some uh, form of discipline that kept them honest? Yes, to a large extent. The, uh, uh, but I would put the burden of explanation more generally on capitalism here. The, the only reason why, take Britain, for instance, and the National Health Service, the only reason why the bourgeoisie, the ruling class in Britain, accepted the creation of the National Health Service was because the, the, the working class, and especially the returning soldiers after the Second World War, uh, had been radicalized through... Uh, exposure to communism and socialism on the continent. Uh, the, the Soviet Union was um, a success story at the time. It was considered to be a genuine alternative to capitalism. And the idea that the rich would have to pay for the, the health service of the poor and uh, university education and tuition, tuition fees, to them that seemed like a small price to pay for retaining capitalism. But once the Soviet Union had collapsed under the, the weight of its own disasters in 1991 and beyond, they didn't have to do it anymore. The role of the IMF, it uh, seems ambiguous. At sometimes they seemed uh, to be sensible and supportive and uh, very much like the Social Democrats in the, uh, in the final analysis that go along with orthodoxy. Christine Lagarde seemed to play a, a similar role personally. What do you make of the fund's role in, in uh, the, the Greek drama? The fund has three sections of segments within it. There are the researchers in Washington, D.C., who understand um, very well the situation in Greece and were completely in agreement with me about the kind of debt restructure that I was proposing. Then there is uh, the leadership of the International Monetary Fund, which is European, as you know. Since Bretton Woods, uh, the World Bank was given to Washington and uh, uh, the IMF was given to a European leadership. Christine Lagarde was the finance minister of, of France. Uh, she has very strong links with Wolfgang Schäuble, the German finance minister until recently, and Angela Merkel, the German chancellor. She constantly dreams of returning to France as a prospective presidential can candidate. Uh, therefore, she needs to be in cahoots with the French bankers. Um, she's utterly at odds with the research department of the IMF in Washington, D.C. And then there's the third dimension, which is, of course, um, the administration in the United States. The administration was itself, as it usually is, divided. President Obama was uh, um, a great supporter of what we were trying to do. He told me so personally. But at the same time, the Treasury Department were like spokesmen of uh, the German Chancellery. Uh, and they were connected to David Lipton, the number two in the IMF, uh, that was supposed to be Washington's uh, harness on the European leadership. So it's a very complicated situation at the IMF. And uh, what you see from the outside as reluctance and uh, uh, ambiguity is simply a reflection of the fact that there is no such thing as the IMF line. Emmanuel Macron makes uh, several flattering appearances in, in the book. Now that he's uh, the president of France, he's uh, talking about very neoliberal labor market reforms. Do you think he's going to behave now that he's in power like one of those backstabbing social democrats? He's already doing it, but it's not because of the neoliberal labor market reforms. Uh, Emmanuel was always a neoliberal, but he supported me and my government because even a neoliberal Doug, could see that what we were saying was right. Because the crisis in Greece was so, so deep that an honest neoliberal could not but agree with me when I was saying that this is an, we had an unsustainable public debt and the solution was not more loans. He was a banker, Emmanuel Macron. Yeah, banker and bankers understand that. They may practice extending and pretending when it suits them, but they understand that this is not a solution, at least for others. Uh, so Emmanuel Macron was very brave and uh, forthcoming in his support of me, simply because the crisis of Greece was so deep. But even when he was the economy minister of France, during the same time when he was supporting me, a leftist finance minister, he was already introducing uh, neoliberal policies in the French labor market. But the, the worst aspect of his presidency at the moment 
is the way he is, the uh, means by which he's trying to achieve his objectives, because his objectives for Europe are not that bad. He understands that if the Euro is going to survive, uh, the Eurozone, at least the Eurozone, if not the whole of the European Union, must evolve into a federation with a federal government, with uh, treasuries, with uh, an FDIC, a banking union, a proper banking union. He understands that and he wants to institute this. But the way he's going about it is pathetic. He's, he's, he's effectively telling Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, that, look, I'm going to spend all my political capital as the freshly elected leader of France, president of France, to Germanize the labor markets and introduce austerity to bring down the budget deficit in France, to pacify people like Schäuble and you, Merkel. Um, and in exchange of that, once I do all that, then you will give me a federation. She's not going to do it. She will say yes, thank you, to the Germanization of the French labor markets and the austerity that he will introduce. And then once he has expended all his political capital, she will say, no, I don't want to do this. And then what does he do? I'm speaking with former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis, whose book Adults in the Room has just been published by Farrar Strauss. Turning to Greece, why do you think that Syriza rolled over? This is a question that I'm going to take with me to my grave. I have no idea. I could not see it coming, believe you me. Uh, as you know, because we used to talk for many years before that, I never intended to be a politician, never intended to be the finance minister. The only reason why I did it was because I believed Alexis Tsipras and my other comrades. I believed them in what? But you're never a member of the party. No, but but you know the, 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 the leadership of the party, I got to know very well before I accepted their invitation to join them. I liked them personally. I believed in them. And when I say I believed in them, I believed not everything they said, but the basic proposition, which was what? That we want a decent agreement within the Europe and within the European Union. But if they push us to make a choice between Grexit, being pushed out of the Eurozone, or taking another toxic loan within the Eurozone on conditions that continue the debt deflationary crisis that is crashing Greece, we would choose Grexit, even though Grexit was not our policy. That was our clear understanding beforehand. And I believe that this was not only my preference ordering, but it was theirs as well. It turned out, after a few months in government, that it was not as it, as it seemed. And the insider-outsider divide um, was sort of spreading within our ranks, like the thin edge of a wedge dividing us. Uh, and look at them now. They have all become resolute and enthusiastic insiders. You're adamant uh, against Grexit, that uh, if it was going to happen, it would only be because you would be pushed out. If Greece was to leave, you'd have to be kicked out by the Germans and, and, and their colleagues. Some people on the left seem to be mad at you still for this position, uh, a critique uh, that they extend to your uh, position about democratizing the EU, your current DM25 campaign, that uh, they, they accuse you of being naive about the fundamental nature of the EU. Um, how do you plead to this? Not guilty. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, you've read my books. Thank, thank, thank you for this. This one and the previous one. I don't think there is anyone who is harsher a critic than I am of the European Union and the European Monetary Union. Uh, I'm fully critical of it. But allow me to answer in, uh, uh, in, in two ways. Firstly, I don't know about you. I suspect this applies to you too. But I spent my youth uh, criticizing my government out on the streets because I believe a, a patriot should um, do this when one's government is wrong. Uh, that doesn't mean I wanted to see the demise of the Greek state. Similarly, I criticized and fought against and demonstrated against the European Union, and I did so too from the position of the finance minister of Greece. That does not mean that uh, it is a good idea to dismantle the European Union. The dismantling of the European Union DAG is going to have profound effects. It will, it will uh, unleash demonic forces in Europe. And the only people who will uh, benefit are not my comrades of the left who disagree with me and think that I am um, you know, a sellout to the European Union for not supporting the disintegration of the European Union. They will not. If, if they were to be the ones that gain power uh, and steer our... Uh, newly released from the EU uh, nation states, then I would be all for it. But it's not going to be them. It's going to be the Marine Le Pen's and the alternative for, for, for Deutschland 
and the nasties, the, you know, the little Donald Trumps springing up throughout Europe that will benefit from the dissolution of the European Union. Now, the second point I want to make, and I, 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 mean, I mean this very sincerely, Doug, I really don't understand the criticism. My point was, Grexit is infinitely preferable to surrender. That I, we agree on. Where we disagree on was, in, in my view, that if we can achieve a viable agreement within the euro, we should go for it. Because the costs of Grexit, because as we were saying at the beginning of our conversation, we don't have a currency that is pegged to the euro. We have the damned euro. And to try to devalue our own currency when we don't have a currency and we need to construct it from scratch is going to be immensely, very, very painful. Still, I remain uh, committed to the view, even though it will be very painful, it will be in the middle run, in the midterm, in the midterm, it will be less painful than what we are doing today. So we agree on this. The difference is that I think that instead of saying, okay, um, instead of proclaiming as our policy Grexit, my view was, no, we don't do that. We go to the Eurogroup. We table moderate, decent, uh, real, realistic and rational proposals for the debt, for the banks, for for austerity, ending austerity, for social humanitarian crisis uh, facing um, policy. And if they say nine and they push us to sign on the dotted line another toxic bailout loan, then we do what I did. We say, no, I'm not going to do it. You throw me out of the euro. You take the political cost of the disintegration of the eurozone and possibly of the European Union. Why should I take this? I prefer to to go down the path of Grexit if you want to push me that ground, in that direction, but I don't see why I should be proposing it. And for the life of me, I can't see why my lexiteer friends, that's left-wing exit um, uh, proponents, um, disagree with me on this. Yeah, I was actually speaking with some Corbynite friends the other day who were um, arguing that uh, Brexit uh, would uh, make it easier uh, for a Corbyn government to do radical things. Do you think there's anything to that position? No, not in the slightest. It, the European Union was never the impediment to a British government. And maybe it was a pentiment to, to, to a, a progressive government in Greece, but the, Britain was never a member of the euro. So Brussels and Frankfurt never had the leeway and the bargaining power that uh, they might have wanted to have to stop a progressive government in Britain from doing progressive things. Uh, this, I think, is, 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 um, is a red herring. Besides, Brexit is already making politics in Britain toxic. It is um, dividing society. It is uh, taking large parts of the working class and turning them towards racism and xenophobia. Jeremy Corbyn does not appreciate that. And I can tell you, because I have, uh, I have very good connections with Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell and the Labour Party, they do not think that. They do not agree that Brexit would make a progressive Labour government uh, more likely uh, or make its life easier. And finally, um, it, you were talking about this a bit um, a couple of moments ago, but uh, it does seem like the centrifugal forces are in control. Like Brexit, Catalan, um, secession, um, AFD in Germany. Uh, there seem to be very few voices for any kind of progressive, humane internationalism around. Uh, could you channel some of your optimism and convince me that uh, I shouldn't despair? DiEM25, our little movement, we started life about a year and a half ago in uh, in Berlin, which is a radical progressive, internationalist, Europeanist movement. It's uh, DiEM, as in CAP and DiEM, is the acronym for Democracy in Europe movement. Most of our members are German. This is a great deal of, a great source of hope for me. We have uh, hundreds of organizations across Europe, um, equally spread between North and South, surplus and deficit countries. Uh, I just came back from a tour of Italy that began uh, in Milano and Torino in the north, the rich north, and ended up in Sicily. And we had thousands of people that came to, uh, you know, with a great deal of enthusiasm to support the idea of a transnational progressive movement that opposes simultaneously the deep establishment, as I call them, and the nationalist international that wants to disintegrate Europe. We 
understand that the major problems we face in Europe are transnational, that uh, cannot be solved at the level of the nation state. They resemble, in that sense, climate change. They, re they demand both local action, action and universal action. And um, whenever we go from Britain to Greece and from Portugal to Finland, there's, there seems to be a great deal of thirst for this kind of transnational internationalist politics. That was the conclusion of my interview with former Greek finance minister Yannis Varoufakis. His book, Adults in the Room, is just out from Farrar Strauss. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the finale of Beethoven's first piano trio, performed by Daniel Barenboim, Pinchas Zuckerman, and Jacqueline Dupre. Till next week, bye.